As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our final weekend review of the European season. In the Premier League, we had intense last-minute drama on the last day as Man City managed to keep Liverpool at bay, but Aston Villa nearly made them pay for some fairly uninspired play. But it was Ilkay Gundogan who came back into the fray to show the citizens the way. Meanwhile, Leeds' season was prevented from getting messy by a man called Jesse. Burnley lived out their worst fears and dropped for the first time in six years. And in Italy, the Rossoneri had the most points accrued and they lifted the title thanks to a brace from Giroud and a rebuilt <laughs> team from Pioli that was pretty darn shrewd. What a way for the season to conclude. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who's embracing his inner Zlatan Ibrahimovic by recording today with a cigar and a bottle of champagne in his hand. Hello, Joseph Lowry. Sorry, I'm just looking around for the camera. How did you know that, Ryan? Good gracious. I do have a cigar in my hand. I do have a nice beverage. That's beautiful from you. And second of all, sorry that my chuckle threw you off your game there a little bit. That was just a really good intro, and I had to I had to give it a little chuckle. You're very welcome, Jim. Well, you, you're, you're quite... Um... You know, squiffy on the champagne at this point. You, half the <laughs> bottle I can see there from my spy camera on you. Yeah, you know, it's it's pretty early here, but I've never let that stop me before, so we should be good. <laughs> that's the spirit. That's the spirit. I'm, of course, referring, Joe, to uh, Milan winning uh, the Scudetto on Sunday and Zlatan, who was on the team that won it 11 years ago as well, coming out, and not even in the San Siro, in Sassuolo Stadium, swaggering out with a cigar <laughs> and a big bottle of bubbly as well. That was That was a baller move, was it not, Joe? It's just a good thing that Graham's not here because if he was, I think we'd have to do five or so minutes on Zlatan and why that was, you know, not something that Graham enjoyed because Graham and Zlatan are mortal enemies just to fill in the gaps there in case anybody didn't know that or didn't remember that. But for me, that is just peak Zlatan winning a title at age 85 or however, however old he is at this point and also still walking into a stadium where you've never played for that team and still acting like you acting like you owned it. Yeah. I mean, when you win the title, that's kind of the privileges that you're afforded. 
Exactly so, Joseph. Exactly so. And as you say, they're Graham not with us today. Uh, he's still on his vacation in Florida, uh, specifically not watching any soccer and also not understanding how to pay for things. We've had a big <laughs> conversation on our Slack about how he doesn't get why you have to have like a paper check and sign a tip afterwards and things, which now he mentioned it is kind of weird that the state's does that have you ever noticed that yeah it's it's too complicated it's just too complicated everywhere and it's unfortunate that the complications aren't the same from country a to country b so graham we we do feel you and we're sorry about that yeah it's okay i mean it's it's just a different system Uh, like in europe you basically like tap your card on a machine and then run away there's no signing (laughs) things uh, or anything like that because there's no tipping culture for very Uh. different uh, systematic reasons joseph also not with us today joe is taylor rockwell yeah uh much like wolves in the last few weeks he's on the beach um he's also (laughs) on the beach in uh, the greatest state in the history of states can you guess which one that is joe well arizona doesn't have any beaches so i don't really know what you could be talking about no second greatest state (laughs) yeah that's fine yeah we can all right yeah the good old North Carolina. Yeah, 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 yeah. Taylor Taylor, Taylor ditched us just like Graham ditched us. Neither one of them wanted to talk. Well, Taylor especially didn't want to talk about Man City winning the title or Liverpool winning the title. And it just so happened that City won. But either way, I think well played to you, Taylor, for just getting out while you can so you didn't have to heat praise on anyone while Manchester United almost ended up in the Europa Conference League. So all told, well-timed <laughs> vacation. Yeah, yeah. We, we didn't have to talk about Man United being terrible at Selhurst Park either, which we might refer <laughs> to later as well. And also, Joe, as a little treat, we're going to go through all the action, of course, from the Premier League, from Serie A and around the world. But also, we're going to look back in this episode at the predictions we made at the start of the season for the Premier League. Some of the things we said would happen, our very specific predictions. There's some interesting ones. The hit rate, I'm not going to say it was 100% hit rate we got there, but these things never are. But uh, I'll be excited to go through that. Are you feeling nervous about that, Joe? Those things never age well, which is why I don't tend to give predictions in the first place. VSPs are a little different because I can put some more thought behind them and make them a little more creative and favorable to myself. I still didn't exactly nail my predictions, and we'll get to that later. Hey, it's okay. It's why pencils have erasers, Joe. It's all right. That's right. That's right, right, Ryan. Well, uh, 50% of the pod may be on vacation, but podcasting is like crime. It doesn't take vacation. We are here, Joseph. We are here to talk about the Premier League and the spectacular way the season went down to the last 10 minutes. Wowzers. Man City 3, Aston Villa 2 is probably the game we should start with talking about. I'm going to call this, joke one of the biggest and most consequential comebacks in Premier League history. It doesn't, maybe on the grand scale of things, you could think of bigger comebacks, but in terms of the importance here of what Manchester City did coming back from 2-0 down at home to Man City, uh, to Aston Villa, excuse me, to win the Premier League title, that's a big one. This is the ninth time that the uh, Premier League has gone down to the last day. And every single time um, the team going in in first place has ended up winning. No exception here. Despite all the drama, Joe, Man City were in the cruise control first place seat for the entire day on Sunday. Uh, And they won their fourth title in five years. Uh, They did have lots of chances to win it previously, to be fair. I can think of a few times when they dropped points, maybe a a missed penalty at West Ham here and there. They did have an eight-point lead, Joe, in the new year. So City... Do we, do we blame them at all for letting it get this far to the final 10 minutes of the season? I mean, maybe they, they probably shouldn't have let it get this close. But to be fair to Manchester City, they also had a historically good Liverpool team right on their tails. And Liverpool are historically good. Both of those teams 
would have been deserved title winners. And and I do have in the first line of my notes under this game for the main talking points is not only was this game a high stakes match and incredibly entertaining, but I think the result is fair. When you zoom out and look at this entire season, City, just like Liverpool, would have been deserved winners and City now are deserved winners of this game. Ryan, this comeback you're talking about, this was just an unreal match. Like, like it was so good. The first 30 minutes were a little slow. It took until we get that cash header that, that things really start to really start to thrill a little bit more and Aston Villa go out ahead. And then Coutinho scores just a lovely goal with a, with a soft first touch. He ditches Emmerich Laporte and, and scores to the near post with his right foot. Villa are up 2-0, and you're thinking, man, what is going to happen here? Because we don't know how the Liverpool Wolves game is going to finish. It was tied at that point, and it stayed tied until after the big things that happened in this game. So like you say, Ryan, City never actually dropped out of first place, but there was absolutely a chance that they were going to, right? There was absolutely a chance that that was going to happen. Liverpool had always felt like we're going to win this game against Wolves, and they did do that. Mane gets a ridiculous first goal off of a lovely touch just, just as good in a different way as Felipe Coutinho's touch in this game from Thiago Alcantara in that game for Liverpool. But you didn't know how this was going to go. It was, I've never covered or really fully experienced a final Premier League day like this one. And even though things didn't reshuffle all that much, certainly at the top of the table, it was still so, so entertaining. And I really enjoyed watching these games. Yeah, likewise. I mean, Joe, I didn't have a dog in this fight, and I don't think you did either. But just the range of emotion watching this 90 minutes and seeing what was happening in the other games, it was absolutely unreal. And the amount of people on my Twitter timeline saying, imagine not loving this sport. I was one of them who said that. And I think a good indicator for me, Joe, is that even my wife sat down and watched for a half hour. And I was like, and no no disrespect to her, of course, but she never watches soccer. She had no interest in it. But to sit down, because what was happening there, it was like, wow, absolutely incredible stuff. And to go back to at a moment, Joe, when Villa have gone 2-0 up through Philippe Coutinho, a bit of narrative, obviously, from a former Liverpool player there as well. Looking at that Man City side and how they played up to that point, I saw no point of return for them. All I could see was Liverpool are going to eventually score and beat Wolves, which they inevitably did. And I just can't... I'm trying to process... How, in your view, how did it come around? How did that turnaround come around? Was it the, the really smart substitutions that Pep made? What, what what kind of change in attitude happened that allowed the game to swing like that? Because it's not often that a team who are 2-0 down like that are able to swing it, and with three goals in five minutes, no less. Yeah, Ryan, you're totally right. It did feel like the tide was turning to Liverpool, especially after how... How stagnant City had been for the first half. And I think they were better in the second half. Ryan, you mentioned some of those substitutions. We get Zinchenko on for Fernandinho at halftime. And then Zinchenko moves to left back. Cancelo moves to right back, who he started at left back in this game. And John Stones, who started at right back, moves to center back. And Fernandinho moves to the bench, of course. I think that made a huge difference in this game. In just a second, I'll talk about why that is. So the subs, I think, were, were huge. Sterling comes on for Riyad Mahrez about 10 minutes into the second half. Gunduan comes on for Bernardo Silva in the 68th minute, which is right before the flurry of goals. It's about eight minutes before the flurry of goals start to come in. So I do think subs were a part of this. City have a lot of players who have played a lot of minutes when you combine that with the fact that I'm not sure... The game was really working for the initial setup that Pep put out there. I think it was a wise move to make some of those changes. But then, Ryan, you also mentioned attitude. And I don't I don't bring up attitude or mentality very often, certainly not as much as some other people, because we don't really know how to measure that. And I don't deny that it exists, but I never know how to look at two teams and say, ah, this team wanted it more. That, that's a cliche that always rubs me the wrong way when we hear it. And I'm not saying that's true in this game, but I do think something changed for City in that second half. 
going down 2-0 with the subs on the field, there was clearly this recognition of uh, of how much they needed to push. Like, this was it. This was the end of their season. They're already out of the Champions League. This was their chance to win a trophy this season. And I think players realized that. And, and of course, Pep realized that, understanding that he needed to make some changes. So I think there was a little bit of a mentality shift. To go back to the tactical side of things, though, in this game, Aston Villa set up in their... I don't know, almost normal. They, they've messed with some other shapes under Steven Gerrard this season, but a pretty standard 4-3-2-1. It's basically just a 4-3-3, but in this case, the wingers, quote-unquote, are Emi Buendia and Felipe Coutinho, right? And so it those, Christmas tree, Joe? Yeah, like it's, it's a Christmas, Christmas tree. tree. It's exactly what it is. It's a Christmas tree. It's a beautiful, festive uh, celebration. It's an ode <laughs> to Christmas. So Aston Villa are in this shape, and so attacking-wise, you can get a pretty clear idea of what that looks like. It's Coutinho and Buendia underneath Ali Watkins, and they're combining and trying to make stuff happen. The fullbacks are providing width. That's all well and good, and we see that come to pass on their goal, the first goal, and, and to, the, to, the, to a certain extent, the second goal as well. But defensively, Villa defend really narrow, which makes sense when you think about that Christmas tree. They didn't drop a ton into like a a 4-5-1 and move Coutinho and Bandia back into the midfield line. They kind of stayed in that Christmas tree shape and just funneled City down the sides. So they funneled City to the left. They funneled City to the right. And over and over again, the only option that City had was to try to play these long switches. And they kept coming from right to left, not from left to right, because John Stones was at right back and he wasn't providing any forward attacking threat at all. And so the switches would come from right to left over to Cancelo on the left side. He was the widest player for City in the attack in the first half on that left wing. And he would get the ball. And, and it was just so easy for Villa to come and shift and know, because Cancelo is, is sort of predictable. He's incredible at what he does. But you know that he's going to cut in on his right foot because that's, that's what he does. He likes to swing in balls with that right foot from the left side. And Villa were clearly prepared to deal with that. So they didn't have any real threat, City, on that left side, and certainly not on the right side with John Stones in the first half. Fast-forwarding to the second half, Fernandinho comes off, uh, Zinchenko moves to left back, and Cancelo moves to right back. I think it starts to become a different game, right there, Ryan Bailey, because Zinchenko, he's left-footed on that left side. And I'm not saying that always playing a left-footer or a right-footer is the right thing to do on any particular side, but he clearly provided some different attacking angles from that left side, and we saw it on some of these goals. We see it on the second goal, right? Rodri scores and kind of just passes it in to the back of the net from deep. That comes off of a Zinchenko left-footed cutback that just was not happening in the first half. Zinchenko adding uh, adding Zinchenko to that left side, I think, changed how City could attack, and it made them much more dangerous when you coupled that movement on the left with Cancelo and, and then Sterling being a bit more direct maybe than Mares and Stones were in that first half. So I think that contributed to things, a collapse from Villa, a collapse from Villa as well. There's so many different pieces of this, but I think all of those did, all of those things did play a part, right? So yeah. By the way, Zinchenko, um, I thought it was a beautiful moment with him with the trophy after the game. Joe, I don't know if you called yeah, it. Yeah, I saw Took it. his Ukraine flag off and put it on the on the trophy itself, and he was in absolute state of tears. And I must admit, it wasn't a dry, it wasn't a dry eye in this house either. Um, and I, I watched uh, This Is Us afterwards. So it was, uh, so many feels, so many feels <laughs> yesterday for me uh, on on the TV. But that was a great moment. But um, before we got to that point, uh, um, Joe, you know when when Villa are two 0 up, Man City looked unusually open at the back, shall we say. Um, and what do we what do we assign that to? Is it Fernandinho, who this was his last game, by the way, he was the guy who got to lift the trophy first for Man City for all his years of service. But do we put it down to him, you know, not quite having the legs? Is it the absence of a certain right back um, that, that wasn't with City? What, what did you think about that? I don't know if it's 
specifically on any player. What what a tough kind of way to end Fernandinho's last game. I know, I mean the way to end was really good, but I guess the the bits before it coming off at halftime getting yanked for a, a, a tactical substitution. That's a tough one, but I think he'll, I think he'll end up being okay. I don't think it's on any player in particular, but every player made mistakes if that makes sense. So Fernandinho is not a dominant center back. He works in that spot in certain phases of play. He doesn't work nearly as well in other phases of play. He's not going to ever be Ruben Diaz in that spot, nor nor would he have been when he was younger. So you do lose something with Fernandinho at times in the back line. But, I mean, really, on the first goal, you can see just individual defensive breakdowns. Very, very poor defending from Yao Cancelo. And even poor defending on a macro level to let Jacob Ramsey drive forward right through City's defensive shape in this game and play the ball over to Lucas Digne on that left side who then crosses it into Cash who cuts right in front and gets right in front of Jao Cancelo. And Cancelo doesn't really ever find cash. He doesn't go and put him off his run. He doesn't do any of that stuff. So that's an issue. And then on the second goal, Ryan, we can certainly see Rodri doesn't win the ball off of that long goal kick from Olsen. He doesn't win the ball, and then it just gets in behind, and Laporte is not nearly quick enough to deal with Coutinho's touch. Now, to be fair to him, that is a difficult situation. When an attacking player pulls off a touch that good, I'm not sure what exactly could have been done there, but these individual moments have compounded for City lately, not just in this game, but in previous games as well, certainly last week against West Ham. So there are challenges here, and they they didn't really make their lives all that easy in this game, but man, when you have the attacking firepower that they have, and when you make some of those changes, the door, it felt like, was almost closed, but with Manchester City, it never is truly closed until the game is over. Definitely not, definitely not. Of course, this being the 10th anniversary of the Aguero moment, the 3-2 win that won them the uh, Premier League 10 years ago, getting the same scoreline in a last gasp fashion. There's some, there's some unique poetry there as well. I've got to say, Joe, I want to give Villa some credit as well. They had nothing to play for in this game. Mm. And they just were really good. As you say, the way they set up, it seemed like, like I thought Callum Chambers had a really good game in the back, for example. N- no one was standout spectacular. But as a unit, I thought they just they just like really did a professional job in circumstances where they would definitely be expected to, you know, possibly even get a hammering on the last day against City. Absolutely. I, I think the first half especially was a really good display from Villa. Defensively, I kind of already detailed that shape. They did a good job of forcing City to play out wide and really not giving up much when City did have the ball out wide in the first half. I think they were overrun. Well, they, I mean, they certainly were overrun in that six-minute stretch with the three goals in the second half or whatever whatever that time was. They were overrun then, but even in the earlier stages of the first half, they were still hanging on. I think you know, if they were actually trying to go out and, and really compete in this second half, maybe they didn't check all of those boxes. But overall, Ryan, to your point, they didn't have anything to play for. They were safe from relegation. They weren't going to qualify for Europe. They're in that kind of middle status status in the Premier League right now in terms of the table. They didn't have much to play for, but clearly Steven Gerrard was trying to do Liverpool some favors here, which is absolutely the right thing to do, right? Continuing to be competitive to the last whistle is blown on the last day. That's what you want to see. It makes games way more entertaining, and Villa certainly provided that. Definitely. And we saw both managers, Guardiola and um, Jurgen Klopp, I should say, Joe, uh, being very reverential to one another in their post-match interviews. And there's a lot of respect. I wish I wish they hated each other a bit more. I think this <laughs> would make this rivalry a bit more interesting. But uh, a lot of respect between these two teams. And I think at the end of the day, they both concluded. And there was a good interview with Andy Robertson, actually, after um, Liverpool's game as well, where he was like, fair play to City. The table yeah. doesn't lie. Over 38 games, they, they got more points and they can't grumble about that. And looking at this City team, Joe, um, 
Are you, are you thinking, well, I mean, we've kind of touched on this last week, but w- with the addition of Erling Haaland coming in, Gabriel Jesus probably on his way out. There's rumours linking him with uh, Tottenham and Arsenal um, as we record. But say in those moments when they, they come up against a compact defending team and they're forced to switch, they're forced to put in crosses. I'm, I'm recycling a question here from last week, I think, but is, is, does Haaland make that situation all the more dangerous for City? I, I don't know. I am fascinated to find out about how Erling Haaland is going to fit into this team. I, I have some doubts, and I've expressed those doubts before, but I also know that Erling Haaland is a brilliant player that is ridiculously talented with the ball at his feet at times, and he's also ridiculously talented as just a physical athlete. And that gives City a whole different dimension that they haven't had. I don't know that Holland would really help them break down a low block like we saw in this game. But, you know, maybe he can add value there. Maybe he can improve his game in the air and become more dangerous heading the ball. Maybe he can become even more precise to some of his movement off the ball. I don't know exactly how that's going to look. But for me, Holland makes City probably the most interesting team in Europe next year. They're already a pretty interesting team with all of the things that Pep does on a week-to-week basis. But now with... Just a, a cyborg, and just an incredibly entertaining player to watch up front that, that is a ridiculously good athlete and a ridiculously good soccer player all in one. It, City is going to be even more interesting. They could be more chaotic, and it might not actually help them, but I, I think he'll probably find a way, Pep, to really integrate Holland into the side and make them even more dangerous. More chaotic works for me as a neutral. I'll <laughs> yes, say that yes. But we were treated to a day, as I said, a, a, a reminder of why we love this game, I think, this this game yesterday and this, and this situation yesterday, where Pep Guardiola in tears after this game. It's his 10th domestic title he won here. And the pitch invasion afterwards, I don't know how I feel about that because we had mm. fans misbehaving and, and jumping and snapping the crossbar. Uh, I don't think that kind of thing's necessary. And, but the image of Kevin De Bruyne being escorted off the field with around 20 security yeah. guards around him, which is quite an image. Although on, on the negative side, that Villa's goalkeeper, Robin Olsen, was reportedly injured by a fan. So we don't like that. And an interesting anecdote from Noel Gallagher as well. I don't know if you saw this one, Joe. Uh, He says, as the third goal went in, there was absolute bedlam in the stadium. Noel says, I was jumping around like an idiot, passing my son around like the Premier League trophy. (laughs) I turn around and Ruben Diaz's dad runs straight into me, headbutts me, and I'm on the floor covered in blood. (laughs) So, yeah, Noel getting an injury. uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's everything you wanted from a Premier, from a Man City game, basically. The, the Gallagher's both both trending today, one of whom forgetting headbutted by one of the players' dads. Wonderful stuff, Joe. Wow. <laughs> this was this was a perfectly chaotic, Ryan, to reuse that word again, end to the season, a perfectly chaotic end to this game in particular, with the exception, of course, of Robin Olsen and his injury. I saw Man City put out a statement about that. There were a couple of those incidents in Premier League games, not necessarily players or people getting injured, although that did happen. But I'm thinking back to Patrick Vieira. What was that on Friday, Ryan, in Everton's game that, that Thursday, sealed yeah. their... Thursday, yeah. It sealed their their fate to be in the Premier League again next year. That, that sounded ominous, but no, they, they are not relegated. But Patrick Vieira getting into it a little bit with people, which feels understandable when people are, are coming up and messing with... It, it, it's a bit of a mess right now, and I think they're due need to be some regulations about how that works, but I'm also not trying to be the fun police, so I'm just going to shut up. Yep. Uh, soccer is a reflection of society, etc., etc. So on. let's not get political, Joe. Why don't we um, take a very quick break? And when we come back, we'll talk about Liverpool's game. We'll talk about the rest of the Premier League, the rest of Europe, bit of MLS, and our predictions as well. All coming up very shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24/7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. 
Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Joseph Lowry, Liverpool 3, Wolves 1. The quadruple not happening for Liverpool. They have two trophies down. They got the chance to win another cup, a very important one next weekend, of course, as well. This is the second time Liverpool have gotten over 90 points and lost the title by a single point to Manchester Ridiculous. City. Ridiculous, Joe. Ridiculous. How, how, I mean, neither of us are Liverpool fans, but do you feel for them at this point? Yeah, I mean, so we talked about this in the Pep Guardiola uh, Soccer 101 that you, Taylor, and I did last week. And I mentioned how I think Pep and Mourinho and now Pep and Klopp has has built these managers into even better coaches. And I'm guessing better people. Having to deal with a, a competitor that's that close to you and is driving you, and, and it might not always be fun. It might be more stressful than fun. But I think those relationships have built teams and managers certainly into better entities of themselves. And so I, if, to, to bring this back to Jurgen Klopp and not Pep Guardiola, I think Jurgen Klopp must have to wonder, man, what would have happened if Pep Guardiola wasn't in this stinking league? And Manchester United, <laughs> Manchester City weren't spending hundreds of millions of dollars all the time. Not that Liverpool aren't spending a lot of money. I get it. But what, what life could be like if Pep Guardiola wasn't here? Because on one hand, I don't think Jurgen Klopp would be the same coach. And I don't think he'd probably be quite as good of a coach. But man, he probably would have more titles. Ryan Bailey, he probably would have more titles because this Liverpool team, I said it earlier, is historically good. And previous Jurgen Klopp Liverpool teams, not all of them, but a lot of them, have also been historically good. To get this close again and have this many points and still not win the title hurts. But you could also see on the Liverpool players' face after the, the final whistle against Wolves, they'd won, yes, but they sort of just knew, yeah, we, we maybe never really had a shot coming into today. We always thought City was going to take care of business. We believe in ourselves, and we know that we can take care of business against Wolves. But they needed some sort of result in balance. A, a win for both of those two teams is never going to be enough. And I think Liverpool always kind of knew that this was the most likely result. Yeah. Joe, I mean, these are probably the two best teams in Europe at the moment. This is a difficult question, but can we make a case of them being the two best teams ever? as well I mean obviously there's been classic teams back in the day but if even if you go and watch soccer from 2000 or you know 15 years ago yeah. it's not as quick it's not as technical as it is now and I have to wonder as as you'd expect soccer gets better and better every single year so presumably we're at the peak of the game right now and these two being the very zenith of that I I don't think that's crazy to say like I, I don't know how we would ever go through and prove that and, and there actually might be some sort of historical team ranking out there based on a, a few different stats, maybe ELO rating. I'll have to go and look to find that. But even if there is a stat like that, I would be shocked if these two teams weren't very close to the top, like top 10 all time, something like that. Maybe not quite that high, but somewhere in that 0.01% of teams to ever exist that are on a reel, right? And, and we went through and watched, and I went through and watched some Barcelona footage under Pep for that one-on-one episode that I just referenced. And that team was very, very good. That era in, in the, the late 2000s and the early 2010s was exceptional. These teams are equally, if not even more exceptional when you factor in the fact that soccer does get better over time. Ryan, you could totally be right about these two teams. Yeah. 
And we'll never know because we can never prove it. So I should probably move on from that point. But uh, <laughs> commiserations to Liverpool. But hey, you've got a Champions League final next week. And of course, we'll be covering that here on the Total Soccer Show. Um, elsewhere in the Premier League, Joe Burnley going down after six seasons. A 2-1 loss at Newcastle. Um, they sacked Sean Dyche with eight games to go. And this is a team, of course, with partial American ownership in MSD Holdings is Burnley. Pretty rough to drop in this fashion at home to Newcastle. But they were in the bottom three for most of the year. They failed to win any of their first nine games. And it looks a bit like they've got some trouble on, ahead of them. The leverage takeover they have um, and the takeover of the team, it's kind of structured to leave them basically with big wages and it's mm. sucked up the parachute payments they're going to get. So I'm not sure we'll see an instant return. Maybe not some Fulham or Norwich-style bounce-back ability from Burnley. So we'll see that. But Newcastle, Joe, finishing 11th. They looked pretty doomed at Christmas and then they spent £85 million and then got 12 wins from their last 18 matches. So um, maybe even more of a forced Newcastle next year. They're they're also going to be, from a sporting standpoint, one of the more interesting teams in the Premier League next year. And of course, there's much more unfortunate reasons for that with takeovers and, and whatnot. But man, Ryan, I think back to, we're going to talk about our Premier League predictions a little bit later on. I think back to when we were making those and, and sat down to record those way back in August. And I think you and Taylor sort of had to talk me out of predicting that Newcastle would be relegated. And I, <laughs> I do think there was a really good chance that that happened if the takeover did not happen. Oh, yeah. But it did. And so I want to I wanna say thank you, Ryan Bailey, for saving at least one of my predictions. I actually did get my Newcastle one right. We'll talk about that. But this Newcastle team is a totally different animal. It's like, it's like night and day. I know they didn't completely overhaul the squad, but with a different manager and different players, some different players involved and some really talented ones at that. This is a, a this is a mid-table team, and that's exactly where they finish. They'll probably be more than a mid-table team next year. It's unfortunate for Burnley that this is the team they had to face on the final day. Uh, it, it's a difficult situation. Getting relegated sucks, and I don't even know what that feels like, but just watching these games, you can see how difficult it is for fans and for teams and for players and for everyone involved. It, it sucks, and Burnley were... It was down to Burnley and Leeds for this final spot, and it happened to be Burnley, and that's not fun for them. Yeah, I can confirm it does suck, Joe. My team also relegated on the final day of the season this season. Let's move on swiftly from that and <laughs> talk about Leeds, uh, who did, of course, survive with a 2-1 win at Brentford. Jesse Marsh getting the job he was assigned to do, very much done. Uh, former MLS superstar Jack Harrison getting a 94th-minute yeah. winner in this one as well, Joe, after Rafinha got a penalty earlier on. Uh, Marsh took ch uh, charge 12 games ago. Um, and Leeds became the first side since Wigan in 2011 to survive after starting the final day in the bottom three. Well done, Leeds. Yeah, and, and all of this flack that English media and people in Leeds have given Jesse Marsh for talking like an American, and it all comes down to Jesse Marsh and Jack Harrison, MLS exports, <laughs> baby, getting this job done. No, I mean, this is this is a really impressive feat from Jesse Marsh. He He did not... This team, let me expand it a little broader. This team did not make their own lives easy at all. It was far too close. But when you look back and think about the state of Leeds United when Jesse Marsh took over, becoming just a third American manager to ever coach in the Premier League, when you think about the state of this team, they were losing games left and right. They were shipping goals left and right. Their expected goal differential was awful under Marcelo Bielsa. And they had a ton of injuries, and, and maybe that's Bielsa training methods related. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But this was always going to be, going to be a big job. Leeds were not quite in the relegation zone when Jesse Marsh took over, but they were two points away, I believe. And they, they dipped down after a pretty decent start under Jesse Marsh. They dipped down into the relegation zone after injuries hit them and, and some results certainly didn't go their way. 
Jesse Marsh didn't turn this team into world beaters. And I, and I wrote this for Backhield uh, this weekend, and it's up on the website today. You know, Jesse Marsh didn't totally fix this team, but he did turn them into a team that could withstand the early results they had and could climb back up, even if it took them to the final day, that could climb back up out of the relegation zone and salvage not just this current season, but when you avoid relegation, you really salvage your next season too. Now it looks like Brendan Aronson's coming in for, I believe, the second, according to Tom Bogert and, and some others on Twitter, I believe a, I believe the second highest fee, transfer fee ever played for, an, ever paid, excuse me, for an American player after, after Christian Pulisic. Seems like Brendan Aronson's coming in and, and it does seem like this team is now going to transform a little bit. They're going to spend some money. They're going to get some players that really fit in with Jesse Marsh's aggressive pressing style, which is not, in the attack at least, all that different from Marcelo Bielsa. Not quite as possession-focused. But it seems like Marsh will have a chance to really impact this team. And I, I think Jesse Marsh is a good coach. I think he sort of proved that this season. And I think we'll see more of that next season, right? He has indeed done. He's done a good service for the uh, the reputation of American coaches in the Premier League. I'd say Bob Bradley's uh, tenure in the Premier League um, souring the English, uh, perhaps unfairly, Joe, unfairly. Yeah. Uh, and well done to Brentford, by the way. They've had a very good debut season. They were never in the bottom three all year long. They finished on forty six points. I think they're going to have to try and avoid Leeds's difficult second season next season. Try and avoid some of those issues that have uh, plagued Leeds. But well done to Brentford. A very good debut season in. The the Premier League for them. Uh, well done also to Tottenham. A 5-0 win at Norwich um, on the last day of the season. They are back in the Champions League thanks to a Kulishevsky brace, uh, Harry Kane and Hoi Son getting a brace which meant he shared the golden boot with Mo Salah on 23 goals. Mo Salah, by the way, getting pictured with the uh, trophy at the end of the game <laughs> that holding two trophies but also looking super unhappy, the poor guy, obviously, uh, given what else had happened. Um, Antonio Conte, Joe, called this achievement, getting Spurs into the Champions League, one of the best achievements of his career uh he's had quite a career so that's saying something is it not i think he sort of has to say that after trashing his team and like his <laughs> his ability to go out and sign players all season long after he took over uh, mid-season yeah. i think he does sort of have to say that but still this is an accomplishment and tottenham had an edge up on on arsenal coming into this final day and they used it to their advantage both tottenham and arsenal win their games tottenham had a couple of points advantage so they will be in that final champions league spot but man, they just also steamrolled Norwich in this game, which is not exceptionally difficult to do, but they did not leave any doubt. Getting a couple of goals in the first half and then three more in the second half. I'm interested, and I know I'm using that word a lot, I guess, but I'm I'm interested to see what Conte's Tottenham look like next year with a full offseason. Hopefully a bit of stability now for this club heading into the 2022-2023 season. I think Conte is a very good manager, and I think there is clearly talent here. Now, I don't know what happens with some of that talent, and I don't know what their transfer window will look like in the summer, but I think this is a, a strong-ish team already, not relative to City and Liverpool and maybe even Chelsea, but they could, if they make the right moves, maybe make a move for that top three next season. I don't know what that's going to look like, but either way, a good end of the year for Tottenham and getting into that Champions League spots, I think, is really important for them. Bold call for top three. That's what I like to hear, Joe. Very good. <laughs> Uh, all the same, well done Spurs players. Uh, feel free to go get some ketchup. We won't tell Antonio Conte over the summer. Um, Spurs getting that Champions League place at the expense of their North London rivals Arsenal who got a 5-1 win over Everton. Uh, they missed out on the Champions League by two points. They're in the Europa League with Manchester United, Arsenal and Man United in the Europa League next season. Hey boy. Uh, Everton of course safe after the aforementioned win on Thursday confirmed their 68 year stay in the top flight and they very much did not show up for this game. Uh, West Ham had the chance to steal their 
that Europa League spot from Man United, uh, but they finished uh, in the end in the Conference League spot after a 3-1 loss to Brighton. Uh, and elsewhere, Crystal Palace won Manchester United. Nil. More utter garbage from Manchester United, Joe. To finish off the season here, their lowest points tally in the Premier League uh, ever, 58 points. Their worst finish since 1990. No leadership, no confidence. Good luck, Eric Ten Hag. Big old job ahead of him, Joe. Yeah, Manchester United, may the Ten Hogs guide you next year. All ten of You're going to need all ten of them, really, I think, to, <laughs> to do any sort of damage in the Premier League. The fact that they did escape the, the Conference League spot and they, they did climb into the Europa League hopefully does make Taylor a little happy. Maybe th- this is just pity. Taylor, if you're listening, I'm sorry. I am sort of pitying you, and hopefully that's good and you're happy with the Europa League because that's all you got, unfortunately. Taylor, you can't get him down. He's he's Taylor. You're, you're Joe, but Taylor, Taylor's in North Carolina right now. He's in North Carolina. He can't. Nothing can get you down in that state. It's a wonderful, mm. wonderful place. Anywho, why don't we move on, Joe, to Serie A and the big conclusion there? This has been the most exciting title race in Europe throughout this season. We could probably say, and uh, AC Milan finally getting it done with a 3-0 win over Sassuolo on the final day. Their first title in 11 years, their 19th in total. Uh, 18,000 Milan fans at the stadium in Sassuolo, which only holds 24,000, so like 75% Milan fans here. This stadium's like 100 miles from Milan as well, so a a pretty good turnout for them. Um, They only needed one point to finish above their their very close rivals, Inter, and of course they got three here uh, with Juru getting a brace and Kessie in his final Milan game, getting one as well. Zlatan, as we mentioned, with cigars and champagne, he got on for the last few minutes as well. Joe, I wasn't sure that Milan were going to walk this one in quite the fashion they did. So Swallow are a very dangerous team. They've beaten Juve, they've beaten Inter, they beat Milan earlier this season as well. But I kind of felt watching this one, it didn't really seem in doubt. It seemed like from the offset, Milan were, yeah. came out swinging and they were, they were going at the goal from, from minute one. Ryan, I totally agree. And I had the same thoughts about this game and maybe how it would flow and and maybe how it would be difficult for Milan heading into the opening whistle. Sassuolo are a good team. Graham has referenced that several times throughout the season. You go through and look at some of their numbers. They're one of the better chance-creating teams in Serie A. They like to have the ball. They're generally very good at playing through pressure. Berardi is a really dangerous presence for them in that front line. Of course, a lot of other very good players as well. And so I thought, man, this, this could be a little nervy for Milan headed into the final day when Inter can still catch them. And then it wasn't nervy at all. Milan just steamrolled Sassuolo pretty much in the first minute. Rafael Leal was so dangerous on that left side. He was constantly driving at Sassuolo defenders on the left and then getting over even on the right in the build-up to one of the goals. Milan, in general, was in this 4-2-3-1 shape and, and consistently pressed and was aggressive and didn't really seem at all afraid of Sassuolo's ability to play through them. And Sassuolo do have that ability, but man, between some of the mistakes that they they made and some of the errors that they they put on themselves, Sassuolo, and Milan's really aggressive pressure out of that 4-2-3-1, it never really seemed, once the game started, like Milan was going to have any difficulty. They created chances on set pieces, they created a few chances with their work and, and use of the ball, but mostly just blitzing the opponents and, and really getting the ball to Rafael Leal on that left side and letting him go to work and find Olivier Giroud. Yeah, yeah, they they wanted this one from the start. You could you could see it was, it was the only way this was going to resolve uh, this game. Um, wh- where do you put Milan's biggest strengths, Joe? I mean, obviously Leal had quite a game here with with all the assists he got and the way he was running at them, as you say. 
Um, I've always thought like that defensive midfield, the Kessie and Tonali or whoever it's going to be in, in, those, in that front, in that two in front of the defence, has always been sort of the real power of this team. Where do you see it? I think that is a really good shout, Ryan. For me, I might even expand it a little broader, although the midfield too might be a microcosm of the point I'm trying to make. I think their versatility is a big part of what makes them so good. I, I'm honestly not sure that Milan is the best team at Serie A at doing any one thing. If you think about really being aggressive defensively, yeah, they're, they're good at that. I'm not entirely sure they are the best at it in Italy. If you think about their work with the ball, I think Inter and maybe even a couple other teams might surpass them in some of those, some of those phases of play in possession and even at times in attacking transition. But I'm not sure there has been a better team in Serie A at everything combined this year. And that includes some of the possession work. We see uh, a flexible 4-2-3-1 from them this season. That's been Pioli's MO pretty much all year long. It's a back three sometimes. It's a back four other times. The fullbacks might stay back. One of the midfielders might tuck in between the center backs or outside the center backs. Different forward alignments at times within matches. But usually that base 4-2-3-1 shape, they can press aggressively. And we saw an absolute clinic from them in this game on that kind of stuff. They have a lot of the open play things down. They might not be great at them, but they're they're pretty darn good at them. And then you add in Mike Mignon in goal, right? Him him getting real minutes this season. I went through and looked at some of the numbers, and this didn't surprise me after what I'd seen from him on the field. But he, according to FB Ref, which uses data from StatsBomb, has been the best shot stopper in Serie A all season long. He has saved Milan goal after goal over the course of the Serie A season. He's another huge part of this. When you couple Mignon with the the defensive pressure and stability at times, and and you couple those two things with some danger in possession and in transition in the attack, you're looking at a title-winning team. And that's exactly what Milan are right now. They are indeed. And Olivier Giroud, by the way, Joe, since leaving Arsenal in 2018, uh, he's won the World Cup, the Champions League, the Europa League, and now the Scudetto. That SOB just keeps getting better, doesn't he? <laughs> Let that be a lesson to you all. When you leave Arsenal, things get better. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And a shout out once again to Pioli as well, Joe. Um, not universally loved, certainly when he first arrived sure. at Milan for various reasons, but he has rebuilt this team. Uh, he had his medal stolen, by the way. He complained that his, his league winning medal is that I've only got one. Please return it if someone has it, um, which is kind of sad. I hope he gets that back. But, um, you know, he, he's the one who's uh, not necessarily had full support yet got this team rebuilt and got it to where it is today. So he, he deserves a lot of credit. Without a doubt. Yeah, he's not, you know, a super heralded manager outside of Italy and, and maybe even within Italy. I, I'd be curious, Ryan, about your perception of him as someone who's currently living in Italy. But from my perspective here in the U.S., and I'm guessing other places in Italy, he's not this managerial giant. Maybe that changes now. After an impressive season with a versatile team like I just described, I think he's done a really good job messing with the lineups and the personnel at times in the right ways. Not like his Milan team totally dominated all season long, but to deal with the pressure really for most of the year and to deal with uh, to deal with uh, Inter and to deal with Juve at times, even though they fell off a little bit, to deal with Napoli and to still come out on top. I think he deserves a ton of credit for that. So Ryan, from your perspective, is Pioli that highly regarded in Italy? What is his perception there? What is the perception of him there, I should say? I think 
as of today, Joe, I think it's certainly a lot higher. It's not, yeah. He's not got the profile that the others have. He's not a Sari. He's not a Mourinho. He's not an Allegri. So I think he needed this. And I think in contrast to the managers that preceded him at Milan as well, it's quite important. All those sort of former players and legends who weren't able to win this title and he's come in and done it. So I think this this might be the start of something for him, for sure. So, well, well, that's, that makes it sound like he's done nothing in the past. But you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> yeah, the, the, the profile raises from this point, I suppose. Absolutely. Getting the Scudetto in place. So well done to him. Well done to Milan. Um, Inter Milan, by the way, they had a 3-0 win at home against uh, Sampdoria to finish second here. Uh, Napoli also with a 3-0 win away at Spezia. Juventus lost 2-0 away at Fiorentina on the last day. Bit of a disappointing finish for Allegri there, um, but fourth place secured, so Champions League soccer for them. Um, and they finished uh, above uh, Lazio, who had a 3-3 draw with Verona on Saturday evening, and Roma, the two Rome teams finishing in fifth and sixth uh, to qualify for the Europa League. They had a 3-0 win at Torino this weekend with Tammy Abraham getting a brace there. Tammy Abraham, the highest scoring Englishman in Serie A history with 17 goals. Wonderful stuff, Joe. What do you think of Serie A this season? It's been, a, it's been a ride, isn't it? It's been great. Ryan, you said this was the best title race all year long in Europe, and you are absolutely right about that. Certainly in the major European leagues, they didn't disappoint. And I, I do want to shout out uh, CBS as well for some of the coverage this season. Oh, yeah. They've done a, a really good job of raising the profile of Serie A in the United States, which I think is great, right? This was a great season for Serie A. It was a great year to be able to watch and see expanded coverage of that in, in a way we just maybe haven't had, certainly in recent years and probably ever, from any broadcaster. So so credit to CBS for some of the work they've done to raise the profile. Yeah, I've, I've truly enjoyed watching so many of these games this year. Yeah, I totally agree there, Joe. And I think Andre Cadero and Matteo Benetti are my favorite um, commentary duo hmm. in in all the land at the moment. So uh, all, the, all the more from them and a very good job from CBS. Uh, quick look around the rest of Europe before we take a break. Uh, let's go to La Liga. Real Madrid drew their final game of the season. Nil-nil with Copa del Rey winners uh, Real Betis. Uh, their last game before next week's Champions League final, of course. And Ancelotti, weirdly naming his strongest eleven in this one and still getting the nil-nil draw here. I would have rested a few players, perhaps if I was him. Um, Gareth Bale, Ancelotti said that he would have a one more chance to sort of get himself a farewell, a fitting farewell. Uh, didn't even make the squad in this <laughs> one. So I think, Joe, that means he's going to come on in the Champions League and score a couple goals like he did last time against Liverpool. Is that the conclusion I'm drawing there? It's the only conclusion to draw, yep. Ryan. I can't wait for the short but, you know, sweet Gareth Bale redemption tour. Indeed, it's coming. It's coming next week. Uh, Barcelona lost on the last day against Villarreal, 2-0 at the Camp Nou. They finished second. Um, Villarreal finished in seventh. They got the Conference League spot there. Real Sociedad uh, lost uh, 2-1 at home to Atletico Madrid. Atleti finishing in third. Sociedad in sixth place, getting that Europa League spot. And Sevilla with a 1-0 win over Athletic Club uh, to finish fourth in the season. Bill Bow finishing just outside European contention in eighth spot. Joe, it was also the DFB Pokal final, the German Cup final this weekend. Freiburg won, Leipzig won after extra time. Leipzig going through 4-2 on penalties. Uh, full disclosure, I did not watch this game, but um, yet another cup competition going the distance here. I, Ryan, I can't, I can't do this anymore, man. It is, <laughs> it, I think it's illegal. I honestly think it's illegal to have a cup final or any sort of final of a cup competition that ends in 90 minutes. I, I think that is just illegal. Somehow the soccer gods have banned it from reality. Four of the five, so not, not five of the five, but four of the five big countries in Europe that we think of as having the big leagues 
had their cup final go to extra time. So Spain, the Copa del Rey, went to extra time. Italy, the Copa Italia, went to extra time. England, the FA Cup, went to extra time. Germany, the DFB Pokal, went to extra time. France did us a solid. They ended in regulation. Appreciate that, France. The Europa League ended in extra time as well, or needed extra time to decide something. It's, it's, it's a lot of soccer, Ryan Bailey. I think, and I'm even to the point where now some people are actually tweeting me about this and including when games go to extra time, they're, they're tweeting at Graham and I about how, you know, we're bummed about that. And you're right, we are bummed. Extra time soccer isn't good. Credit to RB Leipzig, though, I will say. The atmosphere was incredible in this game, and Freiburg certainly put up a really strong fight. But credit to Leipzig, Nkunku scores the equalizer for them after it looked like maybe that wasn't coming. What a player he is, and what a transfer saga it's going to be this summer unless a club just swoops in and pays a whole bunch of money and ends it really quickly. Nkunku is going to be one of the highly, one of the highest uh, sought-after players in the entire world. Maybe not as highly sought-after as one of his countrymen was, and, and we'll talk about that maybe in just a minute. But, man, he is an incredible player. Leipzig won their first-ever trophy. I feel for Freiburg a little bit here. I think it would have been more fun if they'd won this thing and, and gotten a trophy of their own. But fair play to Leipzig and the work that Tedesco has done for them this season. Fair play indeed. My conclusion from that, Joe, is that I need to bet on the Champions League final to go the distance as well and to clear out some extra time on the schedule on Saturday, basically. (laughs) I think that might be the right move as long as Manchester United... Yeah, no, they're not playing in it, so you you should be good. Yep, yep. They're good. Long time till they're involved in that one, I'd say, Joseph. Um, (laughs) Let's take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll talk MLS. We'll talk about uh, some other business going on, including the Kylian Mbappe saga. And we go back to our pre-season Premier League predictions, all coming up very shortly. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. MLS Corner Time, Joe. Any games you want to shout out? Any, I don't know, North Carolina teams that beat Canadian teams? Or any, just anything. Go where you want. Yeah, Ryan, let's let's start with that. Do you feel good about being a team with a 17-year-old academy goalkeeper and, and all the other goalkeepers were either injured or unavailable? Is that like is that good for you? you are you happy with that? Yes. Okay, yeah, that's the right answer. That's totally the right answer. Yeah, that was a weird game. So Charlotte beat the Vancouver Whitecaps 2-1 at home at Bank of America Stadium. And Vancouver's goalkeeper situation was wild. They'd gone through so many different players. Their starter, Thomas Asal, was out and is out with an injury. They'd they'd gone through a number of other players that just were not available for whatever reason. And so they gave a a short-term contract to one of their academy kids. And credit to him for coming in and stepping up in that situation. He looked like an academy kid playing goalkeeper in a professional game. But what else are you expecting, right? So Vancouver were not in the easiest of positions on Sunday. But Charlotte, absolutely fair play to them. 
in a 4-3-3 that I think has some potential for Miguel and Hel Ramirez. Charlotte get a win. NYCFC continue to be strong, even with a slightly rotated squad. They beat Chicago on a somewhat controversial handball decision in the box that led to an Eber, corner, uh, Eber penalty kick. Excuse me. Those games were interesting on Sunday. The game that I really do want to highlight, though, is Philly. The Philadelphia Union going to Providence Park and beating Portland, the, the Timbers 2-0 in Oregon. That, that result put Philadelphia on top of the Eastern Conference. And that Eastern Conference playoff race, and, and really the race for the top team in the Eastern Conference, and maybe even the top team in Major League Soccer, LAFC would like a word, but still, Philly and NYCFC are in quite the battle right now. NYCFC win their game at home, as I referenced. Well, not really at home. They're playing at City Field, which is where the New York Mets play. They don't have a home, NYCFC, I suppose, at this point, given how many other games they've played at different stadiums. But still... NYCFC get a result, Philly get a result away against a a solid Portland team, and they lose Eric Williamson midway through this game. But still, that is one of the most compelling storylines of MLS so far in in this this still fairly young season. We're about a third of the way through. Philly and NYCFC both look fully capable of winning a trophy, whether that trophy is the Shield or MLS Cup later on in the fall or the winter. We don't do seasons here, so I don't know. But man, an impressive road win for them over Portland at Providence Park and and just an impressive season from those two teams in particular, Philadelphia and New York City. Very much so. Thank you, Joseph. Let's jump back to Europe for a second for the Women's Champions League final, which took place in Turin. Uh, Barcelona won. Leon three. Underdog victory, Joe. Leon winning it for the eighth time, if you can call that an underdog victory. Um, But they did beat PSG on the way through, who eliminated them last year. Barcelona, the form team, possibly in the world, only losing one match all season, but uh, getting beaten here. Amandine Omri's opener for the... uh, What what a great goal that was from distance. Unreal. This game was so fun. This game was so much fun. The atmosphere was ridiculously good. And that's been a great part of this Women's Champions League season. It has been so much fun to watch this competition grow. The goal from Henri is so good, Ryan. From like, what, 30 yards out? It is so far away. And it's an absolute worldie to put Leon up 1-0. Ryan, you mentioned them being underdogs, and that, I think, is a fascinating part of this game. Lyon have won, uh, coming into this game, I believe they'd won five of the six previous Champions League titles. Now they've won six of the last seven, and of course they'd won uh, another couple previously. They're a giant in, in soccer. They are an absolute giant. They're one of the best teams and clubs of all time. But Barcelona are the best team right now. They, they certainly were coming into this game. They won the Champions League last season. They'd only lost once coming into this game, and they finished their league campaign, Ryan Bailey, with a plus 148 goal difference. Plus 148. <laughs> they were heavy favorites on the betting markets coming into this game. Heavy, heavy favorites. And Leon didn't look phased at all. They stepped up. They were aggressive with their pressure. Katarina Macario and Lindsey Horan, two U.S. Women's National Team players in midfield for Lyon in this game. So much talent for them. Henri gets that gets the scoring off to a ridiculous start in, in early on in this game. She scores that worldly that puts Lyon up 1-0. Then they go up 2-0. Then Katarina Macario finishes things off and they go up 3-0 inside 33 minutes. Barcelona do pull one back before halftime. But the game was pretty much done. Lyon are such a good team that if they have that size of an advantage, even just a two-goal lead, it's not maybe big enough for a lot of teams against Barcelona and how good that team is, given how good that team is. But man, it was enough over the weekend. And credit to Lyon, credit to Lindsey Horan and Katarina Macario and the other just ridiculous talent that's on that team. They were not. They just were not the favorites coming into this game, even with all of their history as a club. But they played like favorites in this game. 
Yeah, I, I think I've used underdog in the loosest possible terms. No, there, but, but you're right. Like, Ryan, you're right. When you think about the context of this season and even last season, Barcelona were, and I, I think should still be, considered a historically good team. Like, like maybe when you mentioned City and Liverpool earlier as some of the best teams ever, Barcelona, this, this Barcelona feminine team is the team that came to mind as maybe being the greatest soccer team of all time. When you look at how dominant they were over the course of pretty much every competition this season, the cup still isn't done for them, but the league is wrapped up. They almost had the Champions League. When you think about how dominant they've been, this is a really good team. And Leon, I don't think were the favorites in this game, but they came out there and, and kind of played like favorites. They did indeed. Congratulations to Leon. Um, Rangers won the Scottish Cup 2-0 with a win over Hearts, but Graham's not here, so we don't have to talk about that, Joe. <laughs> uh, the other story from Europe we should probably talk about, though, is Kylian Mbappe uh, over the weekend agreeing to stay with PSG, extending his uh, deal with PSG until 2025, uh, having reportedly already agreed a financial package with Real Madrid. Um, and Javier Tabas, the president of La Liga, pretty unhappy with this situation. Um, quote, what PSG is doing by renewing Mbappe with large amounts of money after losing 700 million euro in recent seasons and having more than 600 million euro in wages is an insult, capital letters, to football and various other things that he's not happy that um, Real Madrid basically didn't go for Haaland because they thought they'd get Mbappe. Now they're getting neither. Yeah, there was a really good piece in The Athletic by Adam Crafton about this whole situation. And, and that was one of the most interesting bits for me, Ryan. You just mentioned it. Madrid don't really go in that hard for Holland. City come in and really make their move and, and get that thing done. Madrid are just waiting for Mbappe. And now they get neither, which is a huge blow politically for that club there and for Florentino Perez and, and really a lot of folks involved. So that's a massive issue for them. I, I think this whole situation, Ryan Bailey, and you're welcome to disagree, I think it's hilarious. I, I really oh, yeah. do think it's funny. I didn't expect Mbappe to stay at PSG. The fact that he did and is becoming the highest paid soccer player in the world right now makes sense when you think about all that money and, and getting to stay at a club that he clearly knows and has some affinity for. That makes sense to me. I didn't expect it. So that's the, the chaotic piece, the, the first chaotic piece of this puzzle. But the second, and, and the best part of all this is that complaint that La Liga is filing. They're not just filing it to UEFA or, or like to, to soccer governing bodies. They're filing it to French administrative courts and they're filing it to the EU, to the European Union over this, in, over this entire situation to defend, quote, to defend the economic ecosystem of European football and its sustainability. I, this, it just doesn't make sense to me. They're not wrong. Let me be clear. They're not wrong. It is wild to me that, that PSG can pull off this deal and there's clearly been some shady things happening financially with PSG, same with Manchester City, and, and with a number of other massive clubs that are owned by nations, right? That is wild that that even exists. But the fact that La Liga, the team, the, the, the league that has Barcelona and Real Madrid, two teams that are not exactly the models of financial stability, right? the fact that La Liga is the one pointing the finger here doesn't really add up to me. I, I think the finger should be pointed and, and something should be done. And I'm not smart enough to know what that stuff is. But it's just funny to me, Ryan, that La Liga is the one doing the finger pointing here. This is 100% the point I was going to make. This is Tevas throwing stones from his glass house very much with uh, um, not exactly uh, two clubs with uh, financial sustainability uh, in, in their MO. And of course, the whole structure of La Liga where they get most of the money as well. Yeah, Tevas. Um, we, you're unhappy. We get it. And you put them on blast. We get it. But, uh, you know, I saw, Ryan, Ryan, I saw a tweet from Alexis Guerreros, of course, of the Cooligans, that said Real Madrid crying that PSG is bending the financial rules to sign Mbappe is hilarious. That's like Will Smith being upset that someone interrupted an award show, which I, that's perfect. That's a good joke, Alexis. That's funny. It made me laugh. I liked it so that I could remember to bring it up today.
Accepted. Thank you for bringing it up. Thank you, Alexis, for the joke. Uh, one final thing to cover on this show. We thought it would be a bit of fun, Joseph, to um, look back at our pre-season Premier League predictions because we wanted to test our sense of hubris, I suppose. Um, so why don't we... I've got um, Graham and Taylor's predictions down here. I'll, I'll let you take the floor first. I think you covered... Um, we, took, we, we divided up the Premier League and I think you had Villa, Chelsea, Leicester, Newcastle, Watford. So if you want to go through and um, go through your greatest hits and greatest misses from, from the preseason <laughs> <Sure>. shows. <laughs> yeah, so I got three of these all the way wrong. I got one of them correct and all the way right. And I got one of them sort of half wrong. And Ryan, you can make the ruling as to whether or not that should be right or wrong. I'll, okay. I'll leave it up to you. So let's start with the ones I got wrong. Aston Villa, wrong. Joe, super wrong. I said that Bundia would have the most combined expected goals and expected assists on the team, on Aston Villa's roster, and that it would be more than Jack Grealish ever put up for Villa. That was wrong on both fronts. He did not end up with the most XG plus XA on the team, and it was less either way than Jack Grealish was the year before. So, Joe, you were wrong. I'd like to defend my intent there. I think Bundia is a very good player. Yada, yada, yada. I was still wrong. doesn't matter. The next XG, one I was wrong by on. The way, right. XG plus XA. Is, I feel like I'm doing algebra here, but go on. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. The next one is Leicester. Uh, so I said that other than City and Liverpool, Leicester would have the most through balls in the league. Joe, you were wrong. They were eighth in that category. I was really banking on Yuri Tielemans just kind of threading him through and behind and that Pats and Dachau would really come in and impact this team and that he and Jamie Vardy would be making all sorts of those runs in behind. That happened, but just not enough. So, Joe, you are wrong. The third one, I was wrong on Ryan Bailey. Watford, I said that Ismaila Saar would have at least three goals this season where he absolutely dusted an opposing fullback. That did not happen. He scored five goals heading into the final day, and none of them were like that. So maybe I overestimated Saar slightly there. I'm going to blame it on... Uh, just, you know, being tired from traveling for international competitions and, and, you know, being a star in AFCON and all that good stuff. That's that's just what I'm going to say there. Ryan, the one that I'm, I'm not sure that's half and half, and you have to decide whether or not to get credit for it, is Chelsea. So I said that Chelsea would have four players with at least 10 goals this season. And Chelsea had four players hit double-digit goals in all competitions, but only one of them hit double-digit goals in the league. What, what do I do? Do with that? Does that count? Does it not count? I kind of feel like it shouldn't count because these were Premier League predictions, but I'm leaving it in your merciful hands. Uh, I'm giving you that one, Joseph. Yes. Technically, it's Premier League predictions, but these are all Premier League teams, and that's the uh, context in which we're viewing it. They Four players got over 10 goals. So, yeah, you can have that. Congrats. Beautiful. Okay, so that's one I got right, and my last one that I also got right is Newcastle. So I said that Alan St. Maximin would be in the top five in attempted dribbles in the league this season. Coming into the final day, and I didn't check this this morning, I should have, but either way, he was leading the league in attempted dribbles, and I highly suspect he is still leading the league in attempted dribbles. Maximin is a, a really fun player. I want to see more of him next year. He likes his dribbling, and I was right. So, so overall, Ryan, I hit 40% on these, which is not good. But it's also not as bad as I kind of thought I was going to do. So I'm counting that as a win. It's also not as bad as how I did, Joe. I've looked back <laughs> at what I predicted. I think I found four teams I talked about. Brentford, Palace, Liverpool and Norwich. I presumably did a fifth, but I couldn't find the notes on that. Um, Brentford, I said that Ivan Tony would score over 15 goals or 15 or over goals and beat the tally that Timu Puki had managed the previous season, which was 11. Um, I'm going to give myself 50% here because he did beat Timu Puki's tally. He got 14. Nice. But he didn't get 15. That's so. that's close, Ryan. Yeah, you should take your half point there. That's a good one. Thanks, man. Uh, Crystal Palace <laughs> was the one I probably got the most wrong. I call, I sort of 
very well, I was very down on Palace. I think I predicted they might get relegated, uh, this being kind of a rebuild year after Roy Hodgson. I think I was a bit down on Patrick Vieira as well. Uh, I was so down on him that I predicted he'll be the first manager to be sacked at Christmas time. <laughs> That's right. He was not. He didn't. He was not. I think, I think honestly, a good year for Crystal Palace and a, a bad year for that particular Ryan Bailey prediction. Yeah, and another another one that kind of stinks. Uh, I quote myself: Liverpool will be in the battle for fourth place this season. Bear in mm. mind, I did bet on Manchester United to win the Premier League, so take that with uh, whatever <laughs> pinch of salt you will. Um, I did say that Kanyate would play less than five games for Liverpool. I thought he'd be a very small player. To be fair, he was. Yeah, he was he played, for a while. Yeah, he played ten games. He played double the amount I suggested, but still. He wasn't playing every week, so um, I don't know. Yeah, you don't you don't get a half point for that, but I I do think you were sort of right about that particular element of that particular prediction. Yep. Uh, finally, Norwich. Uh, I said they will escape the drop and finish in seventeenth place. Nope. Uh, they will have more quality this time around. Nope. Josh Sargent will score a goal in the first five games of the season against Liverpool, Man City, Leicester, and Arsenal. Among those five games, no. No, no, Ryan. no, 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 Ryan. See, these Ryan predictions are hard. And maybe now through this <laughs> exercise, you have some sympathy for me when I squirm, oh, yeah. when I'm trying to give a prediction. This is it's a difficult game we play, Ryan Bailey. It is indeed. I'll run through the other fellas uh, who aren't here to defend themselves, to be fair, but we'll just <laughs> go through the highlights. That's perfect. Uh, That's perfect. That's what we is. want. It yeah. kind of is, yeah. Graham said, uh, talked about Burnley. He said they finished the lowest goal scorers in the league. They were the third lowest the previous season. Uh, the two teams below them were Fulham and Sheffield United. Um, they were the second joint lowest on 34 goals. Norwich, of course, getting 23. So I, I give Graham partial credit for that. I mean, not reinventing the wheel with that one, but still. Yeah, think, close. You're, he's close. He's close. We'll give, he, we'll give him half a point. He's on vacation. Okay. Uh, this is one that, uh, that Graham did get. Rafinha will score more goals than Patrick Bamford in the Premier League this season. Bielsa was doing more to push Rafinha into central positions last season. Um, and the element of surprise is gone for Patrick Bamford. Rafinha, top scorer for Leeds. Yeah. One point, Graham. One point, Graham. And, and Rafinha was great this season. Really fun to watch. I mean, he, he obviously didn't shine as bright as some other players because of how bad leads were for the vast majority of this year. But credit to Graham for highlighting a really fun player on what turned out to be a, a pretty bad team. Yeah, and talking about pretty bad teams, uh, Man United was the one that uh, Graham covered. He said Luke Shaw would get into double figures for assists. He had five the previous Premier League season. Um, uh, no, no. It didn't happen, Graham. No. no, no, it didn't. No, it did not. Nope. Did he get any assists? I'm not sure. I, I think any. he had like three. I looked on, on Saturday morning and I forget okay. what it was, but it was not double digits, that's for sure. All right, then. Uh, and also Taylor Rockwell's um, uh, predictions for Brighton. I think he said Brighton will sign an unse- unsexy forward. I think he means playing-wise. Uh, for a moderate amount who will then be good. They didn't do that. Um, so, you know, Everton will make a deep cup run because their league form will be erratic. Yeah, I suppose you could say their league form was erratic and they went to the FA Cup quarterfinals. <laughs> we're going to give him that one. I think we'll give him that one, won't we? Yeah, we can give it to him. We'll give it to you, Taylor. Yeah. Well, You're on Taylor. vacation too. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Manchester City will win the Champions League, says Taylor Rockwell. Um, who also mm, mentions no. that, mm, yeah, no. that didn't happen. No. Uh, Gabriel Jesus and Bernardo Silva will leave, but Ferran Torres will stick around. I think um, the opposite of that happened so far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and good thing for City that Bernardo Silva didn't leave because I know Kevin De Bruyne uh, gets a lot of the credit for how good that City team is, but Bernardo Silva, I think for me this year he's been on a totally different level. He's been so good, not not a different level to De Bruyne, but maybe a different level to past Bernardo Silva. He's just 
unreal for them. So yeah, good thing for City that he has not left. Indeed. Uh, and Southampton, uh, Taylor said that Nathan Taylor will score 10 goals this season. Scored one. Mm. So 10% mm. right. Yeah, 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 that's good. That works. Okay, and finally for Taylor, you predict for, for Wolves, they will be in the relegation zone after their first three games, but will kick on from there as they figure out their shape and style and will end the season comfortably mid-table, which is pretty much what they did. I'll give them that one too. Good job. Taylor's a veteran of these VSPs, so I, I'm glad yeah. that he got a, a snagged a couple of these. None of us were perfect, but uh, you know that's a, that's a strong one between Everton and Wolves. It's a pretty solid hit rate. That rivals my hit rate, Ryan Bailey. You know, there's something to be said for that. Indeed, and I think I'm going to very much call myself the worst predictor of the Total Soccer Show <laughs> based on those predictions. But hey, Joe, the good news is um, we get to do it all over again in like a month or two, I guess. So I oh, hope you look yeah. forward to that. Oh, yeah. I do really like making these predictions, and I'm glad we revisited them. It keeps all of us humble because soccer is hard and complicated, and predicting it is even more hard and more complicated. Well well said. Wasn't well said, uh, but well no. said. I get you yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. That works. <laughs> all right, Joseph. I think that just about does it for the weekend review. Thank you very much for your contributions uh, as part of the dynamic duo today. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, listener. We'll be back on the feed very soon. In fact, next up on the feed should be a review of Serie A with uh, the journalist here based in Rome, Alistair McKenzie. That's coming up soon. Plenty more coming up this week. But for now, listener, bye.